everyone who's here this morning. I guess we've had two Sundays in a row with uh, rainy, kind of dreary weather, although not as much water today as last Sunday, so that's a good thing. We have visitors here. We're glad you're here. And uh, you might be able to locate a visitor's card just in front of you. We'd appreciate you filling that out, and you can hand it to me on the way out or, or one of the members here. But we're glad you're here. I hope we make you feel welcome. Today we're going to continue our look at our theme, which is In My Church, and in particular this quarter, we're talking about edification, that is building up each other in the faith of God, uh, edification in my church. And today I want to talk about, and well, that wasn't the right button, maybe that. Yeah, today I want to talk about the idea of provoking each other. Some of you might be thinking, that's really good because I'm good at provoking other people, but... No, we want to talk about from Scripture the idea of provoking one another. Turn with me, if you will, back to the passage in Acts chapter 2. And I want us to talk about this passage for just a moment. Now, this is the day of Pentecost. Ed read part of this for us just a moment ago. But this is the day of Pentecost, and this is the first time that a gospel sermon was preached in which the results were going to be that the church began. And so if we look at Acts chapter 2, we kind of see the first picture, an ideal picture, if you will, of what God wanted. We look at Acts 2, and if you notice, they responded. uh, They were told in verse 38 to be baptized, and they were. And so I want to look at verse 41 and just kind of scan these next verses. I won't read it all. Of course, part of it was just read for us. But if you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, then they that gladly received his word. They were baptized. There were about 3,000 of them. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly, the King James says, uh, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread as we've done with the Lord's Supper in prayers. And then it talks about how they were sharing with each other and they really formed a community. And uh, now the church is, uh, you know, all the members have everything in common and they're sharing with one another, giving to one another, even verse 45, selling possessions they have in order to help one another out, that kind of thing. Again, verse 46, they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple. That means the church, I believe, is assembling, at least at this time, on a daily basis. And that's probably because it's brand new and things need to be taught and all of that kind of thing. But they are doing that. And then they're separating from the temple. And you'll notice they're breaking bread from house to house. There is a lot that is going on, both publicly and privately, so that these members are built up in the faith. I want to ask you a question. And you're here today. You're at church. So I want to ask you a question. And I want you to think about this for a moment. How do you feel, and I mean normally so, how do you feel when you come to church? Now, what I mean by that is what's going through your head, your heart, what's on your mind? How do you feel when you come to church? But not only when you're coming here, but when you get here, when you're, quote-unquote, at church, when you're going through an hour like we are right now, how do you feel? And when you leave here, I mean, are you charged up? You know, is it something that you get a lot out of it and you really feel charged up? Or some people would say fired up. On the other hand, are you riled up? You know, something went on there you didn't like. You got mad about it. Maybe some people are just plain fed up. But how do you feel when you come to church? And I really want you to answer that for yourself. I'm not looking for a testimony. But for yourself, how do you feel when you come to church? I would venture this, 
You can agree or disagree, take this with a grain of salt, but this would be my estimation, that most assemblies, like we have here today, house a very widely mixed bag of feelings. There are some people that are charged up by what we've done. They're fired up. They're, they're renewed. And every time they come to church, they get that renewed dedication, want to serve God. Maybe they take some one thing that was said or done. And they go home and they really think about it. And they make a commitment. Maybe even sitting at the pew. You've already done that this morning. You've made a new commitment all over again. I'm going to be more faithful, etc. But I venture to say that there probably, in any given assembly, there are people that are pretty much fed up with it all. And really what you're fighting and what you're thinking is, I'm wondering if I'm ever coming back. That happens from time to time. Maybe you... Someone did something or said something. It might have been publicly. It might be something I preached. But it might be something that just happened that only you and the other person know about. And you're really riled up about that. You're mad, is the idea. So how do you feel when you come to church? It's likely that during any act of worship, as we are worshiping God, many different feelings are being felt, if not expressed. To properly prepare for worship, And I don't know that we teach that enough, if we think about that enough, but we really should. We should really be thinking about the worship service and trying to the best of our abilities to prepare. Now, I know there are a lot of circumstances in life that affect how we feel when we come to church. And some of those are beyond our control. If you're really sick or you've been really sick, if you've lost a loved one, those kinds of things are beyond your control. I remember when my grandfather died. And I had a troubled relationship with my grandfather, but I loved him. And I got the news right before, well, a couple hours before, um, I was supposed to go to church, and we were having a gospel meeting. I went to church, and I cried most of the time through that service. There are things beyond your control. You just, you can't do anything about that. But there are other things that are well within your control. In other words, you can prepare And sometimes things are serious enough that I believe Jesus' example or his teaching in Matthew 5 of leaving your gift, you know, and going and reconciling with your brother and then coming back and giving the gift at the altar. I think that principle applies. I need to properly prepare. If there are things that are making me feel fed up with church, then I need to address that. If there are things that are riling me up, if there are things that are making me mad at someone or upset at someone then I need to get past that because I'm here to worship God. And I can't worship God with all of that mixed emotion going on in my head. And so I ask the question again, how do you feel? How do you normally feel? And how do you feel this morning when you come to church? Negative feelings, you know, hurtful attitudes, the lack of forbearance, you know, somebody not doing what God would do and putting up with certain things out of other people, but always on the attack, always the aggression. When we left here last Sunday night, Marvin and Juliet were just in front of me and they passed. And then, and I was looking at this guy walking this horse that was in the form of a Rottweiler. I'm looking at him walking past my driveway, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, my luck, that dude's going to cut right up through the drive, right out here, and come right by me with that beast. And that's exactly what he did. And when he came up there, I'm on the sidewalk, and that thing just lunged for me. Dogs hate me. They do. They hate me. I have to tell you that. I'm not crazy about them either. Sorry. But, you know, they hate me. 
And so my point is, you know, I uh, kind of lost my point there. But no, no, my point, you know, think about that dog, you know. But my point is, when you're aggressive like that, and you lunge at somebody, you really mess their feelings up. You know, they can't help but think about it. They can't keep their mind on what they want to do. You understand my point. Lack of forbearance, the apathy that people feel. You know, if I look around the room and we're taking the Lord's Supper and people are just kind of going, don't care, you know, that really kills the enthusiasm. We all, every one of us here, you know, this, we're talking about this quarter, edification in my church. Now, obviously, the church belongs to Jesus, but we are the church. It is ours. It is something we're part of. And so you see the language that I put up here. We must all, quote, unquote, own responsibility. We know what that means. We hear that phrase, you need to own that. You need to take responsibility for that. You need to accept it as something you have to be involved in. We need to all own responsibility for the edification of the church. I can't sit back and say, this church needs to grow. This church needs to be stronger. This church needs to be this, and it needs to be that, and take no responsibility for that. I'm part of this church. I'm a member of this church. And I need to own responsibility for the edification of this church. If people aren't growing in the faith, obviously it's my job. But it's also my responsibility as a member of the church to see that people are growing. And all of us need to own that responsibility. We need a proper amount of excitement. And I ought to be part of that. You know, one of the the things that I can do is get my head right so that when I walk in here, that people see excitement. Now, I've been very guilty, and some of you know that. I've been very guilty in the past of letting everything in the world make me come into a church service like this and bring it all in here with me. So that really what I'm getting from a lot of people are, are you okay? Are you all right? And I had to do a lot of long thinking, meditating about that. That's not right. Yeah, there are times, you know, my grandfather dies or some situation like that. I'm going to be sad. You're going to see those emotions. And that's okay. But not all the time. You have to understand that you're part of an organization, a group, a house. And this house won't be what it needs to be if you're not putting your effort toward it. I need to own responsibility for that. It's my responsibility to build you up in the faith. And it's your responsibility to build me up. Edification calls Christians to interpersonal. You know, the idea of getting together, exchanging with one another, interpersonal spiritual exchange. It includes public contributions. When you read, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14 again. And we looked at this, and I won't spend a lot of time here. But when you read descriptions of assemblies in the New Testament, you get things like this. Paul says in verse 3, He that prophesies or teaches speaks unto men to edification. If you're teaching, you're building people up in the faith. And exhortation. There's the idea of encouragement or giving courage or confidence to someone. And comfort even. This idea of me taking responsibility to make you feel better about whatever's going on in your life. Drop down with me again, as he says in verse 12. Uh, no, that's not verse 12. 12. Even so ye, for as much as you are, noticed, zealous of spiritual gifts. Now, the word zeal can even have the idea of envy 
I think that may be the idea here. You're envious of certain spiritual gifts. This is what you need to do instead. Rather than sitting back, and, and to make this a modern day parallel, it would be the idea, oh, Michael's up there preaching, that's what I want to do. Or Greg is up there at the table, that's what I want to do. Rather than that attitude, it is what can I do, what am I capable of doing, what am I qualified to do, what can I do to help. Notice verse 12. <coughs> Seek. And this is the idea of really going on a treasure hunt is the idea. But seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. If you come to this place and you do something while you're here that really builds someone up in the faith, really encourages someone, verse 3, really comforts someone, and you leave this place, two things are going to happen. One, you are going to feel tremendously better for having done that. And two, so are they. And if that happens, we have over a hundred people here today. And if over a hundred people, from the 90s down to the toddlers, if everyone took that responsibility, I'm going to do something to accomplish verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 14. Man, how would we live here, leave here today? And how might we feel next time we started to go to church? You want to go to some place like that. You want to be somewhere where somebody makes you feel positive, good, more spiritual. Notice down again in verse 23. Here's the idea of going to church and somebody that's not a Christian comes in and they watch. And believe you me, we have this. Nearly every Sunday we have this. But let's read from verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, as we are this morning, and all were to speak with tongues. What if everybody in here were speaking in a different language at the same time? You know, it'd be mass confusion. So there would come in then those that are unlearned are unbelievers, and they would look around and say, you people are crazy. And that's what they get out of. And you know, when people, it, it may not be that we're speaking in 50 different foreign languages. But it might be that we're snapping at each other. It might be that we don't care about each other. It might be that we're like that stupid Rottweiler that's lunging at people all the time. It might be all of that. And you know what those people are going to say? You people are crazy. You go to church, you claim to worship Jesus, and this is what you do? That's exactly what they're going to say. So Paul addresses this. And he says, verse 24, but if all prophesy, all teach... Now, not publicly like I'm doing at the same time. But you know, when we were taking the Lord's Supper, if everyone was quiet and observant and solemn and people are bowing their heads in prayer, reading song, lyrics out of the psalm book or whatever, doing things to keep their mind focused, and if you're watching that, you're looking around and you're going, wow. Because I can remember growing up in a church that if you weren't part of the song and dance routine, you just really weren't into it. And maybe one person over in the corner, and some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. They're really getting into the music and so forth. And everybody else is just kind of sitting there. If they don't, you know, if someone comes in here and they see a church involved in what we're doing, they're going to get something out of that. And here's what's going to happen, and this is what Paul said. One comes in that doesn't believe, he doesn't know, and he's convicted of everybody, judged of everybody. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. 
That's, that's what we want people to take away from here. They've got something there. They've got God in that place. They really believe in this book they claim to believe in, and they're trying to follow it to the best of their ability. We want people to have that impression. And so Paul said, how is it then, verse 26? How is it, brethren? When you come together, every one of you has a song. When we were singing, were you singing? You know, sometimes you can look around the room. I'm not telling you to do this, but you could. You could look around the room and you could see a lot of people singing, but there might be somebody sitting over there. Maybe they don't even have their song book. And they're just kind of sitting there. And they're not singing. And they're not putting anything into it. You know, the Lord doesn't care how well you can carry a tune, but He wants you to pick up the bucket, you know. God wants you to sing. Everyone has a song. Everyone has a doctrine. Everyone has a tongue or a revelation. And going back to the setting of that time. But you know what He's saying? Everybody is taking part. That's edifying. That's building up the church. And it requires a completely different focus to do that. A focus that when I come to church, I'm asking myself, what can I contribute? What can I give? I'm not talking just about money. But I'm talking about of myself. What can I give toward building this church up in the faith, rather than just focusing on what can I get out of it? Or what can it do for me? That's a completely different focus. In Hebrews chapter 10, and I'd like for you to turn there with me because I'm going to spend the rest of my lesson on this verse or passage. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews talks about the idea of provocation. Now, the verses we probably know very well, I've got them quoted up in the King James above me here. You can read it or turn to the passage if you will. But let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting or encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, when we look at this verse, or these two verses, we understand that our responsibility is first to consider one another. You look that up in the original language, you're going to get a term that's used for consider there to think about. And we know what that means. When I say, you know, I'm thinking about so-and-so, or someone says, you know, I'm going, to do, I'm going to have to go through this surgery, or I'm going to be doing this, or going to be doing that, and I say to them, I'll be thinking about you. We know exactly what that means. It means you're in my heart. It means I'm praying to God for you. It means I care about you. And that's the term that's used here. When I come into this church service, into this hundred-plus you know, number of people that are here, I need to be thinking about you. Not about me. I've been guilty of that many times in my life. Where all I'm thinking about is me and my problems and what's going on in my life. And I'm not thinking about other people, but I need to be. I need to be deeply thinking and considering other people. What if I say this? What if I do that? What if I act like this? What kind of effect is it going to have on the next person? And I need to think about that. And so the writer of Hebrews says, consider one another. Ask yourself these questions. What do they need? What do other people need? What can I do? How can I help? What makes this service better? And not only that, but to provoke one another. Notice, brethren, consider one another to (coughs) provoke unto love and good works. The word provoke means to stimulate or to stir up. It can even mean to wake up. You know, the guy's falling asleep. No, I'm not talking about that. But waking people up by the things you say and the things you do, making them, 
you know, be clear in their thinking. That idea. To incite people. Or to move people. To act. And you know, what the writer is saying here is not just you always be the Rottweiler on the aggression moving people, but provoke them to love and to good works. What can I do? Simply put, what can I do so that you feel loved more and you will be able to love others more? What can I do to cause that, create that, help that, stimulate that? What good works can I promote? What can I get you to do? What can I allow you to get me to do? You know, maybe sometimes you need to say something to me and I need to listen. You know, but what good works can be accomplished just because we came together at church? And that's the idea. How do you feel when you come to church? Is that what's going on? If it is, then you and others are accomplishing exactly what God wanted. And if it's not, then we need to work on edification in our church. Let's go further with Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to go back with me to verse 19. And I'll spend just a few minutes on this, but this is a passage that I really would encourage you to go home and read and meditate on. You know, Hebrews 10 is talking about God the Father preparing a body for Jesus to come and give and sacrifice. Now, I'm not going to read the first 18 verses, but that's mainly what that's about. The sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament could not accomplish to take away sins forever. God would not remember them for a year, but next year they're back again. But the blood of Jesus shed in that body that the Father prepared, that blood can take away your sins, and that's what you have. And so as he's talking about in this passage, he's talking about people who are sanctified. Remember last year we kept talking about holiness and sanctification all year? Well, this is a group of people who are sanctified. Now as he goes through this, And he talks to these people, and he's going to lead up to what we just looked at. Consider each other, provoke one another, and all of that. He begins to talk about what you have as a Christian. So you'll notice down in verse 22, and I hope you can see that. But in verse 22, he says, let us, you sanctified individuals, you Christians, let us draw near, notice, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Now, why would I be able to do that? Why can I be so confident? Why can I be so motivated? Why can I come to church with this attitude that I have this faith? And why can I be so excited about it, pumped up about it, fired up about it, charged up about it? What is it that I can share with people? And I said here on the the slide above me, we have reason. And I'll say good reason, great reason, to be confidently motivated. You know, there are a lot of people going around, and I know I was one of them once. Religious people who don't have that confidence. They want it. They want that good feeling in their heart that they are saved, that God loves them, that God is there for them, that others are there for them, and so forth and so on. They want it, but they don't have it. And so they're like me, perhaps, when you go down to an altar and you pray for salvation and you feel good so you think you got it, and then you go back out in the world and you don't feel so good and so you know you don't, and you go back and you pray and beg and so forth that God will give you a miracle to show you, but you don't get it. 
So then perhaps you just go away, you don't even believe in God at all. Until someone shows you the reason you can have such confidence. I don't just want to go to heaven. I don't just think about going to heaven. I don't just hope in the sense of it's my greatest wish to go to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. That's what he's talking about here. Full assurance of faith. Why? Why should I have such confidence? Well, one, because we have great spiritual advantages. Scan this passage with me for a moment in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, the King James says, confidence, most of your translations say, to enter into the holiest, and that would be heaven, explained earlier in the book, to enter into the holiness, the holiest, rather, by the blood of Jesus. Great spiritual advantage to have the blood of Jesus. And what it can do for you, the efficacious is the technical term. But how it can wash or take your sins away. Notice verse 20. By a new and living way, explained again earlier in the book, this new covenant that we have, this new way of doing things we have, the New Testament and what it teaches by a new and living way, which he's consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Again, verse 21. And having a high priest explained throughout the book. You know, this is the book in the New Testament that talks about the high priesthood of Jesus. But man, what does it say? It says he took the form, the body, the human body. He lived a life you did, chapter 2. He was tempted in every point like you are, chapter 4. He stands before the Father, before his throne, making intercession for you every day, Daily doing that, chapter 7. And we could go on with that. This great high priest. We have that as as an advantage. The house of God has Jesus for their high priest. The world has many priests. There are many priests in this world. But Christians have Jesus. Perfect, great high priest. Notice again verse 23. Let us hold fast this profession or confession of our faith without wavering. Why? Why can't I be so confident? Because I believe so much in me. You might be sitting there and saying, man, preacher, you really believe in yourself. No. And in fact, not at all. I don't believe in me. I've made too many mistakes. I've fouled up too much. I've been too sorry an individual to ever have confidence in me. But I believe in God. He is faithful. He promised. And that's why I can be confident. I have this great spiritual advantage. Look again, verse 24. Let us consider one another. When we do what we are supposed to do, we have the great spiritual advantage of brothers and sisters in Christ. Or verse 25. When we are part of an assembling. Now, that's just not just coming to church this morning. It's a way of life. I go to church. It's like when someone says, well, you know, so-and-so's Super Bowl's coming. You're going to miss church? I go to church. Well, we're going to have this family get together. We're going to get together and party and feast and whatever. The, you know. Well, I go to church. I am part of a group of people who assemble together on the first day of the week. Yes, like Greg said, we take the Lord's Supper every week. Why? Because it's important to honor Jesus every week for what He's done. And nothing in this world is more important than that. Nothing. I think about sometimes, you know, I'm getting older. I know the health problems are going to come. I think about the time when somebody has to take me down and put me in a hospital 
And you know what's going to be the number one thing on my mind? And I mean this. How can I get out of this place by Sunday so I can go to church? You know? And I may even sneak out. So, you know, you got to be looking for that. But anyway, we have great spiritual advantages. I'll tell you something else. We have a great spiritual standing. Look at verse 22 again. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of, of faith. Notice, having our hearts, that's my mind, my emotions, sprinkled from an evil conscience. I'll ask you a question. Have you ever done anything in life, and I mean bad, and you think about it? It haunts you. You wish you didn't think about it. It gets quiet at night. You're in your bed or sitting in a chair late at night and you start thinking about it. I have. I still do. And what I have to come to is the blood of Jesus. And I have to remind myself of passages in here that tell me, Michael, I know you feel that way. But God is not making you feel that way. God is not making you remember that thing. It is not against you anymore. And you know that's the truth. My standing with God, which is my most important standing, is that when I was baptized or I prayed to God and asked for forgiveness, the blood of Jesus took it away. It's gone. That's my standing with God. It's a great spiritual standing. And we have a great urgency. Down in verses 26 and 27, the reason we assemble and encourage and edify and so forth is because we know if we leave God and we sin willfully, I'm going to talk about that tonight, so I won't this morning. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge, etc., there's no more sacrifice for sins besides Jesus. I can't go anywhere else and find another way to get it done. And verse 27 There is a day coming where if I do not have that standing with God, it should be a fearful looking for a terrible day, a great and terrible day that's coming. There's a great urgency. And so I close with this. We may believe there are many good reasons for forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I've got this to do. I'm busy with that. I'd rather not. I don't feel good. I'm tired this morning. It's raining. Anybody here like to sleep when it's raining? Me, I, you know, I love it. But, but, you know, it's raining today. A lot of good reasons not to assemble together, but truthfully. And in all candor, we are part of something special. The Lord's Church. The greatest organization the world has ever known. And each of us ought to be part of the positive construction, building up of this church. I'll leave you with that. We'll come back and talk about this again in a couple of weeks, and we'll go further with this idea. But if you're here this morning, and you're not a child of God, I can't outline the reasons why you should obey the gospel this morning any more than the writer of Hebrews did in Hebrews chapter 10. But I will say this. If you're ready to be a Christian, if you're ready to have all of that we talked about to be advantaged in every way as the writer talked about, If you'll confess your belief that Jesus is the Son of God, if you'll repent, you're willing to change your life. And you'll be baptized like those people on Pentecost so long ago. Your sins will be washed away. If you're here today and you've done that and you're looking at your life and you're saying, you know what, I need to leave a lot of things behind and I just just need to start over. And the Lord loves you. 
And all he wants to do is to forgive you and take you back and bring you home someday forever. Please come while we stand and sing.